All right. Well, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 6. It is, um, I said last week, it's one of the, uh, I, I, I don't know if I want to, I mean, it's a hard passage, all right? I mean, if you've read it, I mean, if you read it like in preparation, like I know a lot of you do, you know, you read the passage before you come and do your own study. Um, you, you don't do that? Okay. Well, anyways, uh, you should every now and then and uh, see how close we are to each other. But John chapter 6, and I'm going to pick up in verse 22. Um, so there's a couple of things about this. Let me, let me go ahead and, and tell you a couple of things. One, we're going to see the very first I am statement in John's gospel. So in John's gospel, you have a series of seven I am statements. They're, they're God statements. It's Jesus saying, I am. And then he's going to describe himself as, in a metaphor as the bread of life and the good shepherd and the, the gate. I mean, so, so you're going to see, and this is the first one. We're going to encounter the first one where he says, I am the bread of life. And what he means there. The other thing is, is Jesus is going to be talking to a group of people that are following him for one reason, and he's wanting them to understand a greater reason. He's going to take a metaphor of bread and sustenance, and he's going to press it as far as it can possibly be pressed. And he wants them, he's shocking them, if you will, because he wants them to understand the gravity of what it is that he is proposing about himself. Now, here's a third thing. There is in this passage, and you'll see it in verse 37, you'll see it in verse 44, you'll see it again next week in verse 65, and it is statements regarding God's sovereignty. In fact, I'll go ahead and spoil it for you. He says in 644, Jesus will say, no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws him, and um, that It'll make us uncomfortable uh, this morning, and it made the hearers, the first hearers, uncomfortable. But we will uh, discuss that when we get to it. But these are, these are some of the things going on. And it is a follow-up discussion, a, a follow-up teaching to the miracle Jesus did of feeding 5,000 or 10,000 or 20,000, like we talked about last week, with five loaves of barley bread which were the bread of the poor, and two fish, which were likely the size of sardines. And he fed a multitude with them. And so now Jesus is going to have to have this conversation with the people that he fed about what was really happening. All right. So I'm going to pick up John 6, uh, beginning verse 22. So this is the day after the feeding of the 5,000. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. So they're saying this, that all of this happened. They saw the disciples get in the boat. Jesus wasn't with them. And yet, Jesus isn't anywhere to be found. And so they, need to go, they want to go find him. And in 23, other boats from Tiberias had come near to the place. They had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So the crowd saw Jesus wasn't there, nor his disciples. They got into the boats, and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. 
So they get into the boat and say, okay, we got to go find this guy. He fed 5,000 of us yesterday, or 20,000 of us. we got to go find him. So the boating um, dock there in Tiberias, uh, they got, you know, they're opportunists. Uh, they always have been, uh, I guess. And so they so we got a bunch of people. They need to get to Capernaum. So they send their boats, and they start taking people in boats across to Capernaum. Now, the text there says at the end of verse 24, look, look at that again. It says, um, so they got into the boats and went to Capernaum. Capernaum was where was kind of the center of Jesus' ministry was in Galilee. And it says, seeking Jesus. And so John wants us to know, listen, this is what these people are doing. They're seeking Jesus, but we're going to discover they're seeking Jesus for one reason. And yet Jesus is going to contrast that. He's going to confront that and say, you don't really know who I am. You're seeking me, but you're seeking me for the wrong reasons. And there is a way, actually, that you can seek Jesus and not believe in him. That there's a way to actually seek Jesus and desire Jesus and want Jesus that has nothing to do with who Jesus is and why he came and what he really is, has to offer for you. And that's going to be part of the contrast there. So, verse 25, when they found him on the other side, uh, the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? I think maybe they're wondering, you know, was this some, did you do another trick? Did you do another thing, you know, like you did with the bread and the fish? Was it, a, was it another thing you did? Interestingly enough, Jesus has no desire to tell them that he just walked on the water and calmed a storm and didn't have any desire to tell them that. So he says to them, this is how they answer, here's how he answers them. Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, if you've got your Bibles open, you can look back up to verse 14 real quick, and it says on verse 14, they actually did see a sign, and then here Jesus is saying, you didn't see the signs. And here's what this means. They saw what Jesus did in taking this small bit of food and feeding a multitude. And they called that a sign. Jesus here is saying, yes, you saw what I did, but you didn't really see what I did. You, you might have seen me feed a multitude, but you had no absolute idea what it is I was really doing. You had no, abs no idea in any way what this really meant or what this really pointed to. You're not following me because you understood the significance of what I did. You're following me because you ate to your fill, and now you're back again hoping that the buffet will be open again today. That's what he's saying to them. He goes on in 27. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. So here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, you're spending all this energy. You're, you're, you're laboring for, you're, you've come to me for a food that perishes. But I'm here to tell you, I'm offering a food that doesn't perish. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. If you lived in the ancient Near East, in the first century at this time, and you lived around Galilee, or say you lived today in Western Africa, 
You know, you go to uh, Sierra Leone. You can go with Jeff Bice to Sierra Leone and see uh, the ministry there. What you realize is, is that in the first century and in today, in places that are not first world places, when people wake up in the morning, one of the first thoughts on their mind is, what am I going to eat today? So if you were to ask um, one of our kids over here in children's ministry, say, okay, you know, where's food come from? They'd probably say, well, Brookshire's or, or Walmart, but Brookshire's or, or McDonald's or you know, Little Debbie. I mean, I don't know. Uh, you know, that's where food comes from. And if there's a famine, see, here's another thing. You know, we, in the 21st century, we live almost entirely unaware of how the elements are affecting us. So, so we can be in the middle of a drought. We can be, you know, you know how we notice that? Food, food gets a little more expensive at the grocery store. Maybe so. They woke up every day thinking about what they were going to eat. Some have estimated, uh, the scholars who look back at this and, and read all the other um, literature that was going on during the first century, that probably 80 to 85% of what a person made in their, in their work, whatever their work was and however it is they made it, was spent on food for the, their provision, for their sustenance. 80 to 85%. There, there were no um, publications of what color is your parachute. You know? There, nobody was working to fulfill the passion in their life. They were working so that they could eat. And it wasn't even though they had a lot of variety. I mean, you know, it's not like here's white bread, here's wheat bread, you know, and then here's, here's Wonder Bread, which is somehow different, and then here's potato bread and Ezekiel bread, and none of that. It's just they had bread. And 80 to 85% of what they made and what they did went to providing for themselves and providing for their family. So when Jesus shows up and he takes these five little loaves and these two sardines and he fills a multitude, then the opportunism starts going off in your head. And you're thinking, whoa, wait a minute. We got to spend time with that guy. That's amazing. Can you imagine what I could do with all my time if I didn't have to work for food? or all my resources if I didn't have to pay for food. Man, I could get ahead, might get a little Sea Galilee lake house, you know, get that speedboat I always wanted. I mean, this is, I don't know, but this is why they've come to Jesus because they're seeing this man does something that will benefit me right now. And so Jesus is saying, look, you, see, you missed it. If that's all you saw, you missed it. Because I really, there's a sign here, there is something going on, but it's far bigger and far deeper and far more eternal than what you're responding to. You're responding to a free meal. I'm offering eternal life. That's what he's saying. So he says to them, don't work for food that perishes, but for that which is eternal. And they answer, they say this in verse 28, then they said to him, okay, then what must we do to be doing the works of God? We, we like this. 
We, we like what you did with the bread and the fish deal, so what do we have to do to get that? That's what they're really asking. And they're asking that because they have a view of God much like our view of God today. You know, so just tell me what I need to do. I mean, a lot of people, I think, maybe you showed up at Bethel this morning, and you're thinking, okay, I'm here, I haven't been in a while, but I'm here, so just, and you got me, and I'm, I mean, I'm a captive audience, tell me what to do. And, and that's the way they are. And, and I think that's how we view Christianity, and that's how most people view religion, and that actually is not new. People have always viewed religion that way. What do I need to do for God to get God to do for me what I want? How can I scratch God's back so that he'll scratch my back? So tell us, Jesus, what is it that we need to do? So, so is it something I need to, um, need to commit to do, and then I'll do it over for a, for a period of time, or something I need to say, well, I'm not going to do, or you know, some, some of the best behaviors kind of um, um, action? You, you just tell me. How many times do I need to go to church in a row and listen for this thing to happen? And, and there is, so don't get me wrong, there's a sincerity people have about that. They sincerely believe, listen, God, whatever you want, I'll do it. I just want you to take care of this one little thing. I mean, here I am, God, I'm ready to commit my life to you for that. But see, here's the problem. That is not how God works. He's not like the other gods. There's this sense in which what's happening, and this is why Jesus answers in verse 29. He says, Jesus says to them, okay, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do? that we may see you and believe you. What work do you perform? All right, you see where this is going? Okay, all right, Jesus. You want us to believe in you? Give us something to believe in. And then you hear Brett Michaels' 1990 Poison song come on in the background. Give me something to believe in. You know, interestingly enough about that song, he writes that song because his bodyguard, we all know who Brett Michaels is, Right? If you don't, Google it later, all right? You'll drop into a black hole right in the middle of the sermon, and there's good stuff at the end of it, all right? He's a, he's a lead singer of Poison. He writes um, this song, and, and he writes it, and actually, oh, it's fuzzy. Everything's fuzzy for him. But somewhere the end of 89 or beginning of 90, because his bodyguard, who was also his friend, died on Christmas Eve. And he was very distraught by it. I think he was shot and killed. And so he, he was staying at his mom's house. He gets a call. He, you know, he holds himself up for several days, and he ends up writing this song, Something to Believe in, in honor of this, of this guy. You know, he's wrestling with, with all this stuff going on inside of him. And, and then he thinks about his Uncle Bob, who served in the military and got two purple hearts and lost everything after that. So he he's writes this song. And um, th then what he does, uh, and it's, it's a sad song. It's a tragic song. You know, give me something to believe in. Uh, if there's a Lord above... Uh, give me something to believe in. Then he says, Lord, arise. And interestingly enough, the title of the album is called Flesh and, and Blood, which is, you know, like couldn't be any more perfect for a preacher illustration, right? But he goes to get this tattoo in honor of his friend that says something to believe in, and he missed the day 
in elementary school when they taught you I before E except after C. And so I think I got a picture of this. All right, so look at this. This is actually the album cover, all right? So, all right, he missed, they misspelled believe. And then what they did was then, because he was um, under the influence and the tattoo artist was under the influence, they couldn't figure out how to spell it. So they spelled it B-E-L-E-I-V-E and then went back after they found out it was wrong and put a rose around the cross because you know every rose has a thorn and um, <laughs> tried to cover up that it was an E, make it an I, and then, I'm not kidding. And then to make it even more ridiculous, I was just like, where is this going? I don't know, I'm giving you a break, all right? So then what happens is, is then this tattoo goes like viral in the 90s and all kinds of people are getting a misspelled tattoo because, you know, Brett Michael. I mean, what can I say? All right, so. Oh, yeah. All right. Sorry. Uh, what, give us something to believe in. That's what they're saying to him. And so they said, hey, so Jesus, we've got an idea. You give us something to believe in, then we'll believe in you. And we've got an idea, and the idea is this. So back in the Old Testament, there's this guy named Moses. I don't know if you know Moses. Moses is a big deal. Moses fed all the people in the wilderness with manna, and he did it for 40 years. In fact, they even quote the Old Testament to Jesus which I always think is kind of funny, all right? I mean, I know I'm a nerd, but I think, huh, that's funny. Um, it's like, you know, using his own words against him. And so they said, look, this is what he did. And we're thinking, what they mean is, we think if you did that sign, look, you fed us yesterday, um, be a good time to show us that you're, you know, you're actually able to do it again. It wasn't a one-off, it wasn't a fluke. And, it, and actually Moses did it for 40 years. And so, you know, you did it yesterday, let's see, let's, you know, do it today and, and it, we'll, monitor you the next couple of days, and that'd be a good sign. And then we'll decide if we're going to believe in you or not. And as funny as that may seem to us, and as ridiculous as that would have seemed to Jesus, we do that all the time. I mean, we don't say it that way. We're not that overt. We're far more subtle. But I mean, there is a sense in which, as people, we kind of, you know, we kind of let God know, hey, look, we're in the market for a God. We just kind of want to see what it is you might do for us. How is this thing going to work out? I got a list of characteristics and the God that I'd believe in and what he'd look like. And so I'd like to see kind of how you match up. And we begin to like interview God. We begin to sort of test God. What, well, are you able to do this? Let me see. Let me, let me put this out there and see if you'll do that. And then, then, well, you know, I'll decide, yeah, maybe you're worth worshiping. And that's the way the world approaches God. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. That's not how it works. The Bible is not interested in any way in the kind of God that you would worship. The Bible's interested in the God who is. So Jesus turns around and he corrects me. He says, listen, Moses didn't feed anybody. That was God. And he's gonna later say, listen, and not only that, the food that he gave them, it was awesome, manna, provision, 40 years, they never went hungry. But you know what? They all still died from eating that food. The food I'm offering you, the sustenance that I'm offering you, you'll live forever. Remember the woman at the well? She said, you, you drink, this is the kind of water you, that, that satisfies your thirst forever. So she says, I want that water then. Give that to me. And she missed the deal, and they missed the deal here because they say, 
in verse, uh, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it wasn't Moses who gave the bread from heaven, but my father, he gives you the true bread from heaven. The bread from heaven is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, well, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, all right, then this is what you need to know. I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Now, work for bread that doesn't perish. God's work, Jesus says, is believing in the one whom he sent. And now Jesus takes this metaphor, and, and so to eat the bread... You know, so to take in the bread so you never hunger, to take in the drink so you never thirst is believing, that believing is related to the taking in of Jesus, to the ingesting of him, to the, to the consuming of Jesus, all right? So this is how the metaphor is working. So then he says in verse 36, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. So this is the serious problem. You've seen me, but because of my presence and the things that I do and the way that I've taught, I have revealed God to you and it's exposed about you that you didn't know who God was. And so you don't believe. Now, Jesus isn't totally taken aback by their rejection. Because in verse 37, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. The Father's going to give to me. And they're going to come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast them out. You may reject me now. In fact, Jesus knows he'll be rejected. He'll be rejected all the way to the point of being nailed to a cross. That's why he came. But at the same time, he's saying about his father's sovereignty, about the sovereignty of God, is that none of this is happening outside of his plan. In fact, he, he has given some to me. Now, I want to talk about that in just a second because that makes people uncomfortable. And, it, and Jesus hadn't even begun to make you uncomfortable yet. But I don't want to miss this. He's speaking of God's sovereignty, but he's speaking of his sovereignty in the midst of God being a God of love. Uh, John will make the point several times that the Father loves the Son. That the Father loves the Son. In fact, we're going to get to see this even more beautifully as it's spelled out. But listen to this. Let this sink into you for a second. When he says here in 37, my Father, the one who loves me, has given to me something. You know what that is? Do you know what the Father has given the Son? Do you know the treasure, the gift, the prize that he has given to his Son? If you're a believer this morning, it's you. And Jesus says, he's given it to me. And I will never cast them out. And he's going to go on to say, I will never lose them. And they look upon me and they believe in me. They're mine forever. Even if they die a physical death now before I return, I will raise them on the last day back to new life. 
They are never getting away from me because my Father's given them to me. They're my treasure. You see this? God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Jesus is saying God so loved the son that he gave him you. That's what he's saying. So he says in verse 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I came to do God's will. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up at the last day. For this is the will of the Father, my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so the Jews, they began to grumble about this. And they said, well, he said, I'm the bread of life and came down from heaven. But is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? And how does he say, I've come down from heaven? We know where he's from. We know where he graduated high school. We know all about him. Why does he say these things about himself? And then Jesus says in verse 43, do not grumble among yourselves. Because now he's going to diagnose their problem. In verse 44, you can look with me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now look, verse 45 goes with it, and I don't want you to miss this. And it is written in the prophets, so now Jesus is going to quote Isaiah, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Here's what Jesus is saying, and I don't want us to miss this. This is teaching, I guess, that's hard, but it is not without being in the context of the entire New Testament. And so I want to say some things, and this is sort of pastoral. Somebody says, oh, well, this is the election verse. This is the Calvin verse right? I mean, well, John Calvin didn't write it, for one, okay? John wrote it, the other John. And Jesus said it. And there's a sense in which we recognize that the way we come to Jesus is not on our own. Because we've decided, or we thought he was worthy, or we examined all the evidence, and we said, you know what? That's my kind of God. I think I'll go to him. No. We came to him because God, in his grace, wooed us to the Son, drew us to the Son. Notice the word drawing. He didn't drive you there. He didn't stand behind you like a master with a whip and drive you to the place he was taking you. He wooed you. He loved you. He drew you to his son. And he does that by his revelation. He reveals himself. He reveals his son. And that revelation he has given to all men. And what John is saying, what what Jesus says, this is the astounding thing. Listen, All men reject Jesus. All men have seen the revelation. There's not a person that hasn't walked out at the night sky and looked at the stars and thought, you know what? I did pretty good making all those stars. I'm pretty awesome. 
No human being ever, ever stood foot on this planet and took, stepped outside and took care of it for the stars, except for one. We know by looking into the night sky that there is something vastly greater than who we are. So with that revelation and every revelation, including God's word and Jesus' testimony, and yet Paul will say in Romans chapter 3, no one seeks God because we are sinful and we are rebellious and we do not, at the end of the day, want to humble ourselves and bow our knee to somebody else. We want God to bow his knee to us. We want to bestow upon God our belief in him. And there's a tension because it is also true. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God desires that all men all would believe that because for God so loved the world he sent his son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. So there is this tension of God's desire that all men believe and he draws believers to his son and I will just say this. That is a tension that the New Testament is entirely comfortable with. And it doesn't seek to resolve it. It says it is true. God desires all to be saved. He desires you to be saved this morning if you're not. And it is true to be saved, to believe. God has to do a work in you to draw you to his son. Because if not, you wouldn't come otherwise. The best example I can give, I usually say it here, is, you know, they say, you know, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Well, that's not exactly true. You feed a horse, you know, 10 pounds of salt, and then set him before the water, actually, you don't have to make him drink. You've set him before the water, and there's nothing more in the world he wants than to drink. And that's what God does to us. He woos us. He, he woos us by his teaching. He woos us by the proclamation of the gospel. He woos us by granting us understanding and illumination through his spirit so that you feel yourself drawn to the teaching. You feel yourself drawn to believing what maybe you've never believed before. You feel the, the need and the emptiness and the brokenness of your life intersecting with the good news of who Jesus is and all that he's done for you that you can't do for yourself. And so God draws you and woos you and there you are standing before the water and you're saying, I want nothing more than to drink. I choose to drink and so you choose to believe by God's grace. And he's letting these people know here, the reason you don't believe is not because you don't have an opportunity, but because 
you're choosing not to. And just so we're clear, it's the Father who draws those to me. And everyone that comes to me, I will keep. I will not cast out. I will not lose. I will raise them at the end. So they still do not understand what it is that Jesus is saying. He's going to go on, and, and after this, he's going to say, um, in verse 48, uh, uh, or 47, Any, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give, I will give, uh, and the bread that I, uh, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So he says this, and, and Jesus, it's not, I'm so fascinated by this. And so you'll find yourself maybe, if you're struggling to believe, you say, I'm, I'm just investigating this. Why won't Jesus be more clear? He doesn't desire to be more clear. He desires that you'd be illuminated so you'd understand what he says. So he doesn't say to him, oh, listen, no, I'm using a metaphor and you're getting it all wrong. Let me dumb this down for you. He doesn't. He takes this metaphor and he presses it all the way. He says, you gotta eat my flesh. Well, then they say, well, well this is crazy talk. You're talking about cannibalism. And I don't know if you know Leviticus, but Leviticus says you can't do that. But he's not going to relieve their tension because he wants them to know this. You need, some, you need a sustenance. There is a hunger that desires sustenance in your life. And you will either try to satisfy that hunger with things that are perishable or with the one thing that's imperishable. I am the bread that satisfies and sustains you in that eternal hunger. And this is how he's going to say it. Look, look with me. We'll read this and we'll be done. But he says, verse 52, the Jews, they disputed among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not as the fathers ate and died, Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Here's what Jesus is saying to them. Everything you eat has to die. You eat so you can live. But the thing you eat has to die so you can live. So whatever it is that you have for lunch today, you can count on, it died. Whether it was an animal or a plant or a little Debbie, I mean, it died. Okay, little Debbie died for you to sustain your life. 
something had to die for you to live. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to die so that you can live. You eat me. You drink me. You take me in as this sustenance of your very life. And the only way you can do that is that I will die so that you can live forever. And you can try to satisfy that hunger you have with every other thing, starting with the bread I broke with my hands, but you'll miss the point. And whatever it is you are gonna sacrifice in your life to satisfy your hunger, it doesn't solve the eternal problem that you have. There is a bread you can eat a sustenance you can take in and live forever with God as you were intended and created to do. And I'm that bread of life. I will die for you so that you can live. I will take your sin upon myself so that you can take upon yourself my perfection and my righteousness that all I am, I've given up so that you can become all that God created you to be. And it is by God's grace that he's drawing you through faith to trust in him. Maybe you've never taken him in this morning. This is the most vivid language uh, strange language that Jesus will use about what it means to believe in him. But if you don't this morning, I invite you to bow your knee, bow your head, and find yourself before the king of kings, the one of whom at the end of the day all knees will bow at the name of Jesus. Say, you're my bread. I'm hungry for what only you can give. And know then, you've been drawn by the Father. He will never cast you out. He will never lose you. You'll be loved to the end as the prize and treasure given to Jesus and raised up in the last day to live forever with him. And that's the gospel. And Jesus is communicating that to him. So, you, you have just lived through a John chapter 6 sermon. You can put a star in your Bible. Say, now, I, I heard one of those. John is writing this so that you will believe that Jesus is who he says he is that his offer of eternal life is from God. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, I pray this morning that you...